0: Okay, today we are going to do one of my own lessons. I did not borrow this uh, from Ray Vanderlyn. He did tell me one time, if you get one of these, one time in your life, consider yourself very blessed if God gives you something that is huge, like this as far as an interpretation. I think this might be my my gift from God. I want you to challenge it, I want you to consider it, think on it hard, I want pushback, Um, maybe not today because you need to absorb it and kind of think about it, but eventually I want you to say, I think it's sound, I think it's right, or you're way off there. This is a lesson out of Joshua 10. I would like you all to open your Bibles and turn to Joshua 10. Not a book we just crack open all that often. Um, but after Hebrew Roots class, hopefully this will be one that you'll crack open as you're looking around for Messiah in the Torah and the, the rest of the scriptures. Y'all know this story? Anybody that's there in chapter 10? Do you know what it's called? The sun stands still. The sun stands still. Now, I often say... Our chapter headings are about as helpful, I don't know, as a hole in the head. Another one. I've got plenty as it is. I don't need any more. So we'll see. Let's read this story. And we're going to start at verse 6. Normally, we would get the entire context, but uh, I'll summarize it for you. Some Amorite kings came down and and started messing with Israel and their allies. So they asked Israel to come help them defeat these kings and their armies. So verse 6 And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched upon, sorry, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horan and struck them as far as Azekah and Maqueda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son! Son! Stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Eidolon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Okay? It's the miracle of the sun stopping in the sky. Now, we have all heard this story, I'm sure. Anybody not ever hear this story before? Okay, good. We've all heard the story from the book of Joshua chapter 10. The Israelites are in battle and in order for them to vanquish their enemies, Joshua commands the sun and the moon to stand Still, and they did. Today, I hope to show you all why I think we've got this miracle all wrong. Now, we all know, thanks to Copernicus and Galileo, Galilei, that the solar system we live in is heliocentric. It is not geocentric. In other words, the sun, moon, and stars do not orbit around the earth, but the planets and the moons of which we are one orbits around the sun, right? I would like to suggest several problems, which span several areas of study with understanding Joshua's sun miracle in the way that it has traditionally been interpreted. All right, the first set of problems, guys, comes from the realm of physics and the natural laws right? That's the first area of serious problems. If Joshua commands the sun and the moon to stop in the sky and they uh, stop. Problem one, the earth spins on its axis at roughly 1037 miles per hour. That's pretty fast, right? The earth spins on its axis at roughly 1,037 miles per hour at the equator. Y'all, in order for the sun and the moon to appear to stop in the sky, as Joshua and company would have you know, perceived it, we now know the earth would have had to cease spinning on its axis for about a day nobody fell out of their chair. So let's talk about this and unpack it. Now imagine you're on a train traveling at roughly 1000 miles per hour. Is everybody doing that? Good. And then from one moment to the next, the train comes to an absolute stop. What happens to you? you dive yeah. you're flying okay, good. You go hurtling forward at 1,000 miles per hour where you promptly turn into a puddle of gelatinous goo as you slam through the first seven or eight steel walls of the train cars in front of you, right? Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure we were there. This is thanks to Newton's first law of motion, which kind of roughly states that objects in motion will remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside Force. As we have always understood, Joshua commanded the sun to stop and the moon to stand still, and they did for about a whole day, the text says. The problem, y'all, does not get any easier if God brings the earth slowly to a stop to avoid throwing every single human, animal, and structure on the face of the earth into outer space. Are you following with me? Are you tracking with me? The earth is spinning at a thousand miles an hour and if it stops suddenly, everything gets thrown off of the face of the earth into outer space. Okay, good. Does the Bible even hint that the sun slowly began to stop spinning and hours upon hours later it finally did? No, the Bible says, Joshua said, hey, stop, you, stand still. And it did. Problem two, if the earth were to stop spinning on its axis, the sheer wind turbulence alone would be enough to kill every living thing in existence, even if it were brought slowly to a halt. Just the wind turbulence would be enough to kill everything. Problem three, The oceans would be displaced, whether the earth stopped gradually or suddenly. All of the water in all of the oceans on the planet would be thrown violently against every single structure on the face of the entire earth. Kind of a problem, right? Yeah. And finally, problem number four the inner core of the earth, that is the center of our planet, is theorized to be a solid ball of iron and nickel, roughly the size of, mm, I don't know, Pluto, honestly. Our earth's core is roughly the size of Pluto, solid ball of nickel and iron. Now it creates a dynamo as it spins opposite the liquid metal outer core. And that dynamo, that spinning opposite that liquid metal, do you know what it creates? It creates our life-sustaining magnetic field that shields us from all the solar radiation and all of the harmful damage that would be done to us without it. If the earth were to stop, y'all, causing the sun to appear to stand still in the sky, the friction produced at the inner and outer core would be enough to cause a chain reaction of volcanic activity that would destroy much of the Earth's crust and upper mantle, just completely obliterate it. Now, these are some pretty massive problems. I really cannot stress the gravity of the situation here. I don't want anyone flying off the handle, but we've gotta be grounded in our beliefs. (laughs) <laughs> you're so busy taking notes, you didn't even hear me. Mm, oh my gosh, you're so funny. These are some pretty massive problems. I don't want anyone flying off the handle here. Oh, you really did hear it. Okay, never mind. That was just terribly not funny. I'm sorry. Okay, guys, these are simply four of the myriad problems uh, that exist in the problem of physics alone were our earth to stop spinning on its axis so that the sun would appear to stop moving in the sky. This is just four of so many more problems in the area of physics, okay? Now, there are those that would say, okay, but God is omnipotent, right? He can do anything he wants. To this, I would say, hopefully you would say, now, why would you believe a thing like that? Why would you believe that God can do anything he wants? It is true that he is God. And the fact that he is God is precisely why he cannot do anything he wants. Consider this. Can God create a different, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, all-benevolent God? Can God make me a married bachelor? Can God enjoy an X-rated movie or watching someone torture a baby? Can God make himself forget something? The answer to all of these is absolutely not. God cannot do anything that does not satisfy the standards of his own nature. Let me say that a different way. God cannot do something that would come against his own nature. So no, God cannot do just anything he wants. He can only do that which satisfies the standard of his own nature. Okay, let's talk about miracles for a moment. First, what's a miracle? Divine intervention on earth, probably. Okay, I like that. What else, Michaela? Something that seems impossible. Something that seems impossible. I like the word seems. Good. A miracle is an extraordinary event, Right? divine manifestation in human affairs. Said another way, uh, a miracle is something rare and unexpected that God does in the physical realm. A miracle is not when God does something impossible. I know we think that, oh yeah, that's impossible. That's a miracle. No, it's when God comes into our time-space continuum And God acts in a way that is rare and unexpected. I think that's a good definition of a miracle. Now, I can see two types of miracles in scripture. I don't know about you. What I call a natural miracle is a miracle where God intervenes, listen, but does not violate the laws of nature in order to accomplish the event in question. Think about this one, remember? Peter's large catch of fish. Now that was no problem for God. He doesn't break any laws of nature. Fish swim and lots of times they swim into nets. On this particular day, so many fish swam into their nets that not only did it sink Peter's boat, but it also began to sink James and John's boat. Now that's a massive catch of fish. And it was divine in nature because those kinds of quantities of fish don't normally swim into fishermen's nets to where it sinks both boats. So was it impossible? No, but it's very rare. It's not very common, okay? Now, the other, a non-natural miracle would be where God sets aside the laws of nature to accomplish the event in question. Remember this? What is that? Okay, it's the burning bush that didn't burn. Mm -hmm. That's the non-natural. It wasn't consumed. There was no fuel source for the fire on the burning bush. That's a non-natural miracle. It's a miracle that sets aside the laws of nature and says, okay, we're going to do something that, that shouldn't be done. So the question that we ought to have for the text back in Joshua 10 is this. Is Joshua 10's sun miracle natural or a non-natural miracle? And does it matter? (laughs) Good answer. If the sun and the moon, y'all, were to stop moving in the sky, then that means that God would have had to do a non-natural miracle. No problem though, right? He can do that. So far, so good? Good. However, if God breaks the laws of nature in order to stop the sun and the moon in the sky, God would be breaking a whole lot more than those laws. Let me show you how if God does this particular miracle with the sun and the moon the way we think he did, he's breaking his eternal word and his own covenants. The following problem is even more disastrous than the physical destruction of everything on planet Earth. It's even more disastrous than the philosophical problems of God doing something outside of his nature. Are you ready? Come with me to Genesis 8. Don't look it up. Let me read it to you. Take a break from writing notes for a second. Genesis 8:22. You can write the reference down. Now listen, I, I need you to not write, but to listen on this. This is Genesis 8:22. Here's God way back in the eighth chapter of Genesis. While the earth remains, God says, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. Ready? Day and night shall not cease. There it is. If Joshua indirectly caused the sun to stand still, then he just asked God to cease what God said would not cease as long as the earth remains. Not convinced? That's fine. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36 says, you ready? Just write down the reference. This is what the Lord says. Who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then Israel will cease to be a nation. Y'all, Joshua just asked God to make his own fixed order depart from before him, even if it only lasted a day. Last verse, Jeremiah 33, 19. Jeremiah 33, 19 through 22. You ready? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and the night will not come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David can be broken, God says. In other words, God's covenant with the sun and the moon coming at their appointed time cannot be broken. And if it can, then God can break his covenant with David. And Jesus doesn't need to come. So let me ask you a question. Can God break a covenant? Can God break a covenant or a promise that he's made? If he does, he's no longer God. Do you realize that? Because his nature demands he cannot lie. He cannot fulfill his own truth. So let me ask you again with a resounding, can God break a covenant? No way, Mr. Dean. Are you kidding me? Can God deny God? No. Would God break a covenant with himself because Joshua asked him to? No. Do you guys see the gigantic glaring problem we have if Joshua commanded the son to stand still and it did? God would just have contradicted. He would have just contradicted himself and voided his own word, which states that his word cannot be voided. Let me say that again. If God breaks a covenant with the day and the night, God will have just canceled his own word, which says that it cannot be canceled. Does that make sense? That is crazy. Hmm. If God contradicts himself, y'all, even for a day, he would be a covenant breaker and you and I could promptly just dispense with the rest of the book. In essence, we could have a Bible burning bonfire and roast some marshmallows over it because that's about how much it'd be worth if God breaks even one word, one letter of anything in his word. Has your interest been piqued in what Joshua 10, 12 through 13 might actually say then? I hope so, because this stuff just blows me away. I just love this stuff. Now, I think we'll all be studying Hebrew in the life to come. So I say we just get a jump on it right now. What do you say? Let's just jump into a little bit of Hebrew and we're going to learn a couple of words. Going back to the text, the verb rendered stand still in Joshua 10, Joshua commanded the son to stand still. That verb is the verb doom in Hebrew. Say doom. doom. It's not dumb, it's doom. Yeah, doom. All right. <laughs> it has many different meanings in Hebrew, but the first and most common meaning of doom is to become mute to be silent, to be unable to speak. What word in English comes from this word? Huh? Not deaf. Deaf is unable to hear. What is unable to speak? Mute. Did you know that this word, dumb, actually means cannot speak? Deaf means cannot hear. Do you see that Helen Keller Despite being deaf and dumb, that did not mean she was stupid, by the way, because Helen Keller was brilliant. She learned language and she couldn't see, she couldn't hear, and she couldn't speak. She was dumb. She had two senses left out of the five. She could taste and she could touch. And she learned human language through only one of them. You tell me that lady was dumb? In the strict sense of the dictionary word, dumb, yes, To be rendered dumb is to be not able to speak, okay? So now we're getting somewhere. Now we're cooking with gas. I think you guys just came alive for the first time all morning. Here we go. All right, y'all, Strong's Dictionary of Hebrew. You can look this up. Strong's is considered the expert in all of the dictionary lexicon for Hebrew and Greek and all that. Here's what the Hebrew Strong's lexicon says. You ready? This is what the word doom means. I'm going to read it fast, but you'll get, you're going to get the idea. To be silent, to be stifled, to wait, to be dumb, to grow dumb, to be silent, to be still, to die, to be struck dumb, to be silenced, to be made silent, destroyed, to be made quiet, to make silent and to cause to die. There's another clue as to what Joshua yelled at the sun and the moon. Take you back to the text. What caused more death than anything else in the whole story? Hailstones. Now, that's a clue. And it's a huge clue. What kind of hailstones were these? Huh? Nope. That's Exodus. Said that they were stones that God was throwing down. Because from the Israelites' perspective, you know, God's up there and he's, he's fighting for him. What kind of hailstones were they? They were large, okay? The KJV, I believe, says great hailstones. Are we talking pebble size? Are we talking golf ball size? Are we talking maybe softball size or maybe possibly even human and army smashing size hailstones? Huge hailstones, okay? Just keep in mind large hailstones. Yes? So were these hailstones made out of ice? Ice, ice only. Only ice, I believe. Now, God was throwing down hailstones, which is, if I'm an Israelite, that's what I'm going to say, because you know who's not dying in this battle? The Israelites Israelites aren't dying. You know who is dying? All the Amorites. So what do I say from my perspective? Who's doing it? God's doing it. He's he's fighting for us, right? That's what I think when I see, holy cow, and this guy comes up, "Ah!" and he's hit him in the head, or "Ah!" and like three of them just, just get squashed, and I'm like, Thank you, Lord. Like, I want to see a movie of this scene right here. Not that I'm morbid or gross or anything, but I mean, can you just imagine 50,000 people running around and 22 of them? Israel's like, oh, that guy just died. Thanks the Lord. He's dead too. Well, um, how about, okay, well, I'm just going to put my sword away. Hey, you die. Yeah, you die. Right? And I'm just walking around and people are just dying. I don't have to do anything. It's just crazy. Giant or large or great hailstones are falling from the sky. Now, let me ask you a question, be honest, knee-jerk reaction. Have you ever seen or heard of it hailing without nary a cloud in the sky, without one single cloud from horizon to horizon? Not a cloud, blue, sunny skies, but it's hailing. Thank you. Have you ever heard of it hailing outside the context of a storm? No, because that's when it hails is when it's storming. Okay. What kinds of winds would you need to be overhead? Not just for hail, but for great hailstones. Because think about this. All hailstones are made from precipitations in the air that gather freeze then they the 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 wind blows them back up into the coldest part of the atmosphere they gather more water freeze and they their weight pulls them down another wind comes up what kinds of winds would you need to make not non-naturally but naturally the kind of hailstones that were people killers Some, okay, Jordan said really, really strong winds because you've got a four, five pound, eight, think bowling ball. How much wind would you need to keep a bowling ball up in the air, gathering more and more precipitation to freeze to eventually just like a cannonball, boom, and hits a guy, it's gonna kill him. How fast is that thing going? I'm not interested in how fast it's going. I'm interested in it. What kinds of winds have to be blowing if God does a natural miracle with the hailstones? That's some fierce winds, okay? That's a clue. All right. So this is kind of interesting. If hailstones killed more Amorites than even what Israel could kill through hand-to-hand combat, let me ask you a question. Why does our Bible tell us that Joshua told the sun and the moon to stop give us more sunlight burn off that cloud coverage get out of here storm give us more light so that we can defeat our enemies does that make any sense why would he call for more and stronger sunlight if they were already winning with the storm that's throwing hail on the enemies Let me give you a clue. He didn't. There's no way on God's green earth. He said, more sunlight, please. Doesn't make any sense. All right. It was not a bright day with clear and sunny skies. It was exactly the opposite. The text says, if you read carefully, What Joshua yelled at the sun and moon is, Shmesh! Vayerach! Doom! That's what he said, literally. Shmesh! Vayerach! Doom! And I think he yelled it just like that. Doom! So, hmm. Sun! Moon! Be silent! Okay? Grow dumb! Get mute. (laughs) Literally stop it. But stop what? This question is what the entire story of Joshua 10 hinges on.